<laughs> that was so cute, right? Yeah. Hey, thanks for all of you who sang in the video booth. If you did sing in the video booth and you weren't there, come back next week because all five weeks of this series, we'll have different ones of you who sang in the video booth welcoming us into this Jesus Loves Me series. This series is all about the Christian essentials. In other words, if you were in a room with no internet access, no Bible, no book, nothing, and someone said, what's Christianity about? What do I have to believe to be a Christian? Or how do I access the power of God? By the end of this series, you're going to know with confidence exactly what you could say to them. And actually, it's all summarized in that song. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. And what we're going to do each week of this series is look at the significance of each of those words. What do you have to believe about Jesus to be a Christian? What do you have to believe about his love and about yourself and about the word of God? This week, we're starting off the series with kind of the so what question, does it matter? I mean, we live in a society that increasingly says, well, you believe what you believe. I believe what I believe. Really, ideas don't matter that much. Beliefs don't matter. Just as long as you're nice to people and you're a good citizen of society, then everything's okay. So in that kind of society, does it really matter if we get Christianity right or wrong? And that's what we're gonna answer today. But before we get into that content, I have to share a humiliating story from my life with you. It's probably not the kind of story you expect to hear in church, but if you're honest, it's one you can relate to. It's a bathroom story. This story actually took place right after I left my career as a journalist. I had just become a pastor. And I was so nervous because I really didn't know what I was doing. And every time I got up to speak, I felt like I was going to mess something up or break something or do something wrong. And there was some event going on at this little church, maybe 100 people. And we had this little church building. And I forget what the event was, but I remember the crisis that I found myself in. You see, I needed to go to the bathroom. And I went into the bathroom and I did my thing. And then I reached over and I realized that we were out of toilet paper. And I know you guys are all so spiritual that this has never happened to you, but I found myself in a situation where I was in need of toilet paper, but I did not have any toilet paper. And I sat there thinking, what am I gonna do? Now, by the way, this church was in a retirement town. So all these people at this time were all like the age of my parents and grandparents. And I'm thinking like, how do I handle this situation? What, yeah, you know, I, I need toilet paper. I don't have toilet paper. The toilet paper's in the basement. There's a whole bunch of people in the lobby. I'm in here and, and so I'm sitting there and you know, after some prayer and meditation, I realized that I only have one way out of this crisis. And thankfully, praise God for cell phones, I realized, oh, you know what? I've got one other person on staff, our worship leader. And so I text him and I say, hey, dude, I'm totally stranded in the bathroom. <laughs> Actually, I think I might've said, there's someone in the bathroom. <laughs> I forget exactly how I worded it, but anyhow, I said, there's someone in the bathroom in an emergency in need of toilet paper, and uh, thankfully he was able to, to bring me the toilet paper. But I want to talk with you about that feeling when you're kind of stuck, you're kind of stranded, and you need help from the outside. Maybe it's the situation I was in, or maybe it's a situation where your car breaks down, you're on the side of the road, and you realize, I need some outside help. Maybe it's a situation where your phone battery dies and, and you're like, how am I gonna access my life? I need a charger, right? We all have these situations where we need some outside help. 
And what we're asking today is this, where can you access power to solve your biggest problems? All right, we've all got problems like the one I described that we can kind of laugh at, they're kind of silly, they're a crisis in the moment, but the world doesn't end. But as life goes on, we face bigger problems. We face things like a cancer diagnosis or a divorce or a lawsuit against us or something that happens in our finances or a broken relationship with our kids or with our in-laws. We face these bigger problems and we need outside help to solve them. Where is the power to solve those problems. Now I wanna tell you just a little bit about my life journey. Before I became a pastor, I worked as a journalist, a news reporter, and part of why I got into that career is that I wanted to be a force for good in the world. I wanted to help people, and so a lot of the stories that I did were investigative stories where we'd try to expose a problem in society. So things like drug crises or the immigration crisis and other things, especially there in Arizona where I was based. And so I, as a professional, was documenting these problems in society and very often would end up right on the front lines of those problems, walking the trails across the border from Mexico to Arizona, seeing where immigrants often die of dehydration in the desert there seeing heroin addicts and meth addicts and learning where the product comes from and why people get into this addiction. And I was documenting these problems. And what I saw was that the best reporters and journalists, they kind of had this assumption that the way to fix the problems is we need to let society know about it, which is true. The truth sets people free. But then there was this assumption that if we can get the attention of the lawmakers, the lawmakers will change the laws and then the problem will be fixed. Now, lawmakers are very important and laws are very important, but here's what I started to see as a journalist. I did a story that did get the attention of lawmakers and then the lobbyists came in and they convinced the lawmakers to do nothing. And then I saw other times where the lawmakers did change the law, but you can change laws and that that changes the external, but laws don't change the hearts of people. So here's what was going on in my life. I was doing that for a career. Simultaneously, I was exploring the teachings of Jesus for myself in my personal life, in my private life. And I was part of this small group at a church a lot like our church here. And in my small group, we'd open up the word of God. We'd read the teachings of Jesus. We'd apply them to our lives. And here's what I started to see. I started to see that the teachings of Jesus had the power to solve the biggest problems inside of me. That as I would choose to believe in Jesus, he would actually change my nature and disposition. He would make me loving where I wasn't loving. He would make me selfless where I was selfish. And I started to see not only in my life, but in this group of other young men and women, we were all in our 20s, we were all right out of college, young professionals, we started to see the power of Jesus. And we started to see people in our group who had addictions and they were set free from their addictions. We started to see people who had broken relationships and Jesus started to mend and repair their relationships. And as I experienced the power of Jesus in my life, I came to this conclusion ultimately that Jesus is the solution to the deepest human problem. And that while laws and great investigative reporting absolutely matter, that the real solution for the world is the message of Jesus. And so I actually reached a point of crisis in my life where I had to decide, what am I gonna spend my life doing? Now, God calls a lot of believers to work in journalism or in lawmaking or other fields. But in my case, I remember this moment 
where I was sitting with a, a nationally known TV journalist. You guys would all know his face. And we were sitting at this place in Manhattan. And I remember this moment of crisis of just realizing, you know what? The real power to help the world is in Jesus. And I've experienced it. And I'm no longer embarrassed about the fact that I'm a Christian and I'm a follower of Jesus. In fact, I'm so convinced of it because of what I've seen in my life and in real world experience that I'm gonna give my life to that. And I mentioned this verse, Romans chapter one, verse 16. It says this, I am not ashamed of the gospel. What's the gospel? It's kind of a churchy word, but the gospel is this word that means really the summary of Jesus' life and teachings. It means good news, that there's good news for everything that's broken in us and in the world, and that good news is found in Jesus. I'm no longer ashamed of that because it's the power of God. And that's where in my life I move from thinking about Christianity as some belief system or some myth or just one religion among many to realizing a a life-changing belief in Jesus connects me into the very power of God. And I had so experienced that and tasted that in my life that I was able to look at someone I looked up to so much and say, I'm no longer ashamed of the fact that I'm a Christian. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God and it brings salvation. Salvation means that we don't fear death because we know we'll have eternal life, but it also means in this life, we have freedom from sin and addiction. We have the power of God in our lives. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God. It does bring salvation and it brings that salvation to everyone who believes. God gives this offer wide open to all of humanity. He desires that all people would come to salvation and receive this offer, but each of us have a free will. And we get to choose for ourselves, do I believe or not? And it's the moment that we believe that it plugs us into this power of God to change our lives. So here's our big idea today. Our big idea is very simply this. Christ's message is the power to change our world and it's the power to change ourselves for the better. Christ's message, the good news that he brings or the gospel you can call it, It is the power to change our world for the better. It's also the power to change ourselves for the better. Now, I was talking earlier about situations where you realize you need outside help, and I think there's one most of us can relate to, and that's when your phone dies and you don't have a charger. Anyone else relate, ever relate to that situation? Maybe it's just those of us who use our phones way too much, okay? But your phone or your computer or your tablet dies and you're in need of a charger. Maybe you have like an Apple phone and someone has a Samsung charger so it doesn't fit. Or, or maybe you have a PC computer and someone has an Apple charger and, and, and you need this power but you can't quite access it. And so if that verse we read is true, and I believe it is, that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, well, how do you access that power? How do you access the power? And I want to tell you a true story where I realized the significance of this. I was on a trip in the year 2007 to a country called Belarus. Belarus is over by Russia. It's a former Soviet country. They speak Russian there. And I got into my hotel room and I found myself in a dilemma. If you've traveled to Europe or Asia, maybe you've been in this dilemma. I went to plug my computer into the wall and here's the situation I was in. You see, they have, they have different power outlets over there. That power outlet is shaped funny. And, um, or they would say ours are shaped funny. But anyhow, 
I had a plug like this and the outlet was like that. And I found myself in this situation where I'm in my hotel room, all the electricity of a whole city's power grid is, is right there in the wall, but I don't have the right plug for it. And what I learned in that moment, now I know you guys are all smarter than me and if you've traveled internationally, you packed your little adapters before you left, but I wasn't that smart, okay? I learned this the hard way that you need a little adapter. And here's what I learned, accessing power is not complicated, right? Any kid can plug something in. Now they probably shouldn't if they're too young, but you know, it's not complicated, but it is precise. In other words, these three pieces have to be the right three pieces. And I've learned that it's the same with accessing God's power to change our lives. Accessing God's power is not complicated, but it is precise. In other words, it's not as simple as just saying, yeah, I'm a Christian, therefore I have all the power of God in my life. No, there's three or four specific things that we do need to believe to actually be a Christian, to actually plug in to the power source of the universe and experience his power, his energy, his life change here in this life and in the next. And what this series, Jesus Loves Me, is all about is you knowing those three or four things for yourself. Now, you, you hear them here, and, and most of you have had a moment where you've heard this preached and you've believed it, but my desire for you as a brother in the Lord and as a spiritual leader is that you would know with confidence the essentials of Christianity so that you can go through your life. And someday, if a coworker asks you, what do I have to believe to be a Christian? Or if you're tucking your kids or your grandkids into bed and they say, I want to believe in Jesus, what does that mean? That you think, you, you know exactly how to answer them. You don't have to look it up in a book. You don't have to ask someone you know. Well, it's all summed up in this little kid's song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And that you're in a place where you could just very simply walk through each of those words. Here's what Jesus means, that he's fully God. He's not just another person. He's not just a good teacher, but he was God who came to earth. What does it mean that he loves us? Well, it means that he willingly went to the cross to die in our place. He didn't just say he loved us. He showed it with actions. And after he died on the cross, he rose from the grave. He loves me. In other words, I have to believe some things about myself, that I'm in need of a savior, that I've made mistakes, that I'm made in the image of God and I'm loved, but I do need his help. I need his forgiveness. And this I know. Have you had a moment in your life where you've said, I believe in Jesus for myself? Do you know it? Have you had a moment where you said, God, I need your salvation for me. I believe in what you did on the cross. I receive that free gift of salvation. Have you had that moment? And then for the Bible tells me so. That the Bible, we make it the standard for what we do and believe as followers of Jesus. And that keeps us plugged in to the power source. So if you look today on your way in or if you're watching online, you can click below us. You'll see this little card. It says, Jesus loves me. And you got this with your program on the way in. This gives you an outline. This is kind of a spoiler alert, okay? Because by the way, the essentials of Christianity, it shouldn't be like, come back next week to find out. Like they're, they're pretty well known, okay? <laughs> but, but this series is about you knowing them with confidence. You don't have to go to seminary. You don't have to memorize a bunch of books of the Bible to know the essentials. So this card sums them up. And every week we'll be kind of looking back to this because repetition aids learning, okay? Next week we'll go into Jesus. Why does it matter 
that we have to believe he's God and not just another man? We'll, we'll answer that question next week. But this card is a tool for you. And by the end of this series, I believe that if you're here every week, you'll be in a place that you can recite those little lines, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And you can know the significance of each of those words, know it for yourself, and also know it so that you can share it with others. So you don't have to read all these, but this is essentially what we'll go through each week. You know, who is Jesus? What does it mean that he loves us? Who are we? How do we know it? Why does it matter that the Bible tells us so? Now, here's the question we're asking today. Because you might be thinking, okay, great, you're a pastor now. Of course you care about getting Christianity right. That's what you do. Why does it matter for me? So let's ask that question. Does it matter if we get Christianity right? I mean, does it really matter? You know, in this day and age when it's like, well, you know, as long as, pretty much as long as you're nice to everyone around you, it doesn't matter what you believe. That's kind of the, the message of our, our day and age. So here we have this 2,000-year-old belief system that is all about getting a few beliefs right Beliefs that Jesus, by the way, said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He didn't claim to be one way to God. He claimed to be the only way. So if you're upset that it's very black and white, take that part up with Jesus. Okay, I didn't make that part up. But does it matter if we get the black and white things right? And I want to start by sharing today, there's probably you know, dozens of reasons why it matters. I'm just going to give you four today. First one is very unexpected. And it's one that I, a conclusion I reached actually as a journalist, not as a pastor. And it's one you might not expect to hear in church, but it does matter if we get Christianity right, first and foremost, for society. It actually matters for society. And I'll try to compress here about 10 years of research that I've done as a total nerd and investigator. But here's a few things I've learned. Number one, the fact that you and I know how to read today actually traces back to Christians. Do you know that the majority of people in world history never knew how to read? They were illiterate. Until about 300 years ago, most people never knew how to read. Now, there were these groups of people who started making these little laws in their villages that every child in the village had to learn how to read. It was the beginning of what we call public education today. Who were these people and what motivated them? Well, these people were followers of Jesus. They were called Protestant Christians who were very, very excited about the Bible. And they wanted all the kids in their village to know how to read the Bible. So they created a law. You can look it up. This original law was called the Ye Old Deluder Satan Act, okay? The idea was that Satan deceives people. And if people can read the word of God, they'll find the truth. And so we're gonna make it a law that every child in our village is trained to read so they can read the Bible for themselves. And you can trace it back through history. This is not my opinion. That's where public education comes from. Started in England and in Germany and here in the United States through the Puritans. So whether or not we like Christians, whether or not you even believe in God or the supernatural realm, you know how to read today because of Christians. And Christians have impacted our world in a number of other ways that are almost so big that we could miss them. And one of the other unexpected ones is in women's rights, believe it or not. According to the uh, World Economic Forum, they rank women's rights by all the nations in the, in the world. Here's the listing of the 10 best nations for women's rights. Now, let's just, you know, address the elephant in the room here that no nation has arrived on women's rights. We've all got a long ways to go, okay? But there are nations that are much worse and much better 
at giving women equal and fair treatment. And these are ranked again by the World Economic Forum, not a Christian group. You don't have to read all these, but if you want later, you can watch this online. You can pause this so you can go back and study anything I show you today. You don't have to take my word for it. I'd encourage you to dig deeper into these things. So what I did is I just took the top 10 off of this list. There's about 200 nations. And then I looked at another group called the Pew Research Group to find out what is the percent of Christians in the populations of these nations. So I found like number one, Iceland, 85% of the people there are Christian. You average this out across the top 10 nations, 75% of the people, so that's three out of four people in the nations that lead the world in women's rights are Christians. These are very Christian-influenced societies. If you trace back through 50 years, you go back 50 years, these nations have been predominantly Christian for more than 50 years. In fact, most of these hundreds of years. Okay, now let's look at the other end of the list because there are 10 worst nations in the world for women's rights. These are nations where uh, women are still very often bought and sold into marriage. We get young girls, nine, 10 years of age, sold into a marriage to some old guy they don't even know. Um, this is places where women have to cover themselves up by law, places where women are often beaten, where they're not allowed to vote, where they're not given equal access to education. None of this is my opinion as a pastor. This is how the world works. That is sadly how women are still treated in many places of the world, like Yemen, Syria, Jordan, Morocco, etc. Now, what is the percentage of Christians in those nations? Did the research again from the Pew Research Center, and it averages out to about 8%. So less than one in 10 people in those societies are Christian. Of the 10 worst societies to be a woman in today, have any of them been predominantly Christian for more than 50 years? No. And so here's what I concluded, not as a pastor, but as a journalist and researcher. If I love my daughters, if I love my wife, my mom, I want them to grow up in a city that has a bunch of churches in it. You don't have to believe in God to acknowledge that reality of the world that we live in. Here's the summary of this research. On average, Christians make up 75% of the top 10 nations, but Christians are a fragile minority in the nations where women get the worst treatment. And this traces back through history that you can see the influence of Christian beliefs on these societies. It's probably not what you expected to hear, but again, I encourage you, you can research all this for yourself. You can go online, pause these videos, check out every one of those nations for yourself. Would you believe it that the same thing I actually discovered in education? We know that where education goes, um, society improves because you get engineers who can make better things. You get doctors who can advance healthcare. So I looked at the founding of the universities that lead the world today. And again, I wanted to use non-Christian secular researchers. So here's the top 10 universities in the world as ranked by a non-Christian group. Now, these universities, you might be thinking, oh, education, blah, blah, this is boring, okay? But this actually matters because it's graduates of these universities who launched the scientific revolution, who've given us eyeglasses and contacts and surgery and modern medicine and electricity, pretty much our whole modern way of life. Did you know our lifespan today is double what the historic average was? Most people only lived 40 years on average that was the average human life expectancy until about 200 years ago because of the graduates of these universities. Now, every one of these universities, just like those nations, you can go and you can do the research yourself and see who started Harvard. Who started Harvard? Well, the guy's name is the Reverend John Harvard. He's a pastor. 
and he was a group of Puritan Christians who started a Bible seminary called Harvard College. And you can look at their founding documents. One is called The First Fruits of Harvard, where they say, dreading to leave an illiterate ministry to the next generation. In other words, we want pastors to be trained to lead our churches for our kids and grandkids. We're going to start this college. That's why Harvard was started. What I did for all the top 10 is I went through and I looked at, were the founders Christian? Yes, 10 out of 10 of the top universities in the world, the founders were Christian. But not only were they Christian, eight out of the 10 were overtly Christian in their mission statement. So for example, I mentioned Harvard. If you look at Yale, the mission statement, the original mission statement says, for the propagation of the Protestant Christian religion. So again, whether or not you believe in Jesus or God or the Bible, if you care about the women in your life, you want them to grow up in a Christian-influenced society. If you care about your kids and you want them to grow up to be educated and have good jobs, you want them to grow up in a Christian-influenced society. These universities became what I call seed universities. That is, their graduates went out and started other universities like IU. Indiana University started as the seminary of Indiana, started by a Presbyterian pastor who had been trained at Princeton, which was started by six pastors. Not making any of this up, but I'll move on, okay? Let's just talk about healthcare. If you have a heart attack or you have a surgery, you want to go to the best hospital in the world. Doesn't matter if you're atheist, Muslim, Buddhist, you want good healthcare, right? Let's look at the 10 best hospitals in the United States today. You'll recognize some of these names, Mayo Clinic, Cleveland Clinic, Johns Hopkins. I did the same research as with the universities, and here's what I found. Nine out of the 10, the founders were Christian. There's one leading hospital in LA, Cedar sinai Sinai like the mountain in the Bible, that was started by our Jewish friends, but those Jewish founders were actually educated at one of the Christian universities that I showed you earlier. Now, very much like those universities, these hospitals were not incidentally or accidentally Christian. It's not just a random coincidence. You can look back at the founding of the Mayo Clinic and you'll find a nun, that is a woman who had devoted her life to the teachings of Jesus, who moved to the United States when it was still the frontier and there was a lot of poverty. She left a lot of wealth in Europe and she moved here to help the poor. Her name was Mary Mose, M-O-E-S. And she lived near this guy named Dr. Mayo. And Dr. Mayo was a, a normal doctor, which at that time they only did house calls. And she said, you know, we could care for the poor if we would start a little gathering of doctors together. And he said, ah, I don't know, I'm pretty comfortable making house calls. And she said, if you'll get a few doctors together, I'll get a bunch of other nuns, women who've devoted our lives to Jesus, and we will be the nurses, we will care for the poor if you'll get some doctors together. And that became the foundation of the Mayo Clinic. You can also look up Johns Hopkins, one of the best-known hospitals in the world. Johns Hopkins was a real person. He was raised as a Quaker Christian. Quakers believed that slavery was wrong long before the Civil War. Why did they believe that? Because they believed the words of Jesus. And Johns Hopkins was raised to believe that slavery is a, an evil that needs to be ended. He never had kids, but he became very wealthy. And so at the end of his life, Johns Hopkins said, I'm going to leave my fortune, since I don't have kids, for three purposes. I want my fortune split to create three institutions. One will be an orphanage for African-American young people who don't have parents. One will be a university for the teaching of God's word. And one will be a hospital. And that's where Johns Hopkins Hospital came from. You can look through the rest of these some other time. I better stop or I will just totally nerd out on you guys. Point is, 
We're not often taught it. We, it's almost too big to see it, but Christianity has impacted our world. And yes, there have been some really evil people who claimed to be Christians. We can't deny that fact. Christianity accounts for one out of three people in the world today. So there's some weirdos who call themselves Christians. But that doesn't change the reality that these huge leaps forward for humanity, like women's rights and universities and hospitals, were founded by devote, devoted followers of Jesus who weren't just Christian in name, but who were doing their best to actually follow Jesus with their lives. And that's what we're about here. We wanna be the kind of Christians who actually follow Jesus. And that's why it matters that we know the basic beliefs about who Jesus is and who we are and what the Bible is. So let's transition to furry, fuzzy animals since we've been looking at a lot of numbers, okay? Here's a picture of a super cute animal, all right? This is a California sea otter. And if you look closely, there's actually two sea otters here. You see the two noses. This is a mommy holding her baby, okay? Now, California sea otters, if you've ever seen them, they're like the cutest creatures. They're super cuddly. They actually float around and they'll hold hands. They're, you know, sometimes there'll be a group of five or six of these. They're all just holding hands, floating in the water. They just look like these little cute, cuddly teddy bears. Here's a picture of a California sea otter eating lunch. This is their favorite meal, these little purple sea urchins, okay? Now, there's something significant about the California sea otters. And marine biologists, the people who study oceans, they learned this actually the hard way. You see, in the 1900s, these California sea otters, they were all over this area in California called the Monterey Bay. Well, hunters came in and started hunting these sea otters for their skin, and the sea otters got completely wiped out. They became extinct in the area. And then something really unexpected happened. The entire ocean ecosystem for hundreds of square miles, it, it all died. There used to be great white sharks and orcas and tuna fish and, you know, a whole food chain from the tiny animals all the way up. Once the sea otters were hunted to extinction, the whole food chain died. And so some people started looking into this and here's what they found. They found that underwater, there's these giant trees called kelp, sea kelp. And here's a picture of these giant sea kelp. It'd be 75 to 150 feet tall, you know, as, as tall as the roof is in here and taller. And what happens is the smallest sea creatures eat this, and then the next sea creatures eat them, and then the next sea creatures eat them, you know, so these fish eat the small fish, and then the tuna, which are pretty big, eat these fish, and then the sharks eat the tuna, and on it goes, and you get the whole food chain, right? Well, here's what happened. Remember that little sea urchin, the purple thing that was on the sea otter's chest? The sea urchins eat these kelp and they devastate them. If the sea urchins are just left to their own devices, if the otters are not there to eat the sea urchins, the sea urchins destroy the sea kelp, they eat it all, and the food chain starves from the very beginning. The smallest creatures don't have anything to eat. So here's what happened, huge success story. In the 1970s, marine biologists reintroduced the cute, cuddly, furry sea otter back into the Monterey Bay. And after a few years, with the sea otter being back, the sea otters started eating their favorite meal, the sea urchins, and the kelp came back to life. And when the kelp came back to life, the little creatures could eat again, and then they could get eaten by the bigger creatures. And after a few years, now there's orca whales, there's great white sharks, the whole food chain is there. There's orca whales that swim from around the world and they now go to the Monterey Bay to mate and to breed and to feed because it's such a rich, rich food environment. So biologists call this a keystone species, the sea otter. 
In other words, you, you know, a keystone, if you pull it out, the whole building falls down. A keystone species is a species that might look like it's not a big deal, like the sea otter. But if you remove it, the whole ecosystem dies. And here's a conclusion I reached, not as a pastor, but as a journalist, that Christians, while imperfect, are actually a keystone species for humanity. And that where Christians go, where sincere followers of Jesus go, society flourishes. I saw it first as a reporter that when I'd go to a natural disaster, guess who would be there handing out water bottles and helping the people who are now homeless? Christians. You go to a developing country, a third world country, and who's digging the wells? Who's building the orphanages? Who's building the hospitals? It's the Christians. And I realized both from on the ground experience as well as statistics and documentation and irrefutable history, Christians are a keystone species. Now we're not perfect. There's a lot of messed up Christians, yes, but it doesn't change the fact that it matters for society if there are Christians. Next, it matters for our kids and our grandkids. Does it matter if we get Christianity right? Well, it matters for our kids and grandkids. I mean, this can be as personal and real as moms and dads who would have been divorced, who don't get divorced because they're devoted to the teachings of Jesus and they keep working through their stuff or moms and dads who were divorced, but one of them becomes a follower of Christ or the other one does, and they're able to um, turn that situation for good. It matters for our kids and our grandkids. It matters for the society they'll live in, but it also matters for who they will become. Do we want our kids and grandkids to live lives of freedom? Do we want them to enjoy healthy marriages and relationships? Do we want them to live a life free from addiction? Do we want them to have eternal life with God in heaven after this world? If so, then it matters if we get Christianity right. You know, history, sadly, is littered with the corpses, the empty buildings of churches that once followed Jesus but drifted away. If you travel to Europe, you'll find all over England and France and Germany, places where education started, you'll find these giant empty cathedrals that are now museums, or very often they get sold as commercial real estate, they get turned into shopping malls or apartment complexes. Why? Why did those vibrant groups of Christians die off? And the answer is always that they abandoned one of these core beliefs of Christianity. They either stopped believing that Jesus is God, maybe some really slick, nice-looking person stood up and said, hey, it doesn't, you don't really have to believe Jesus is God. Or maybe they stop believing that the Bible is the standard for what they do and believe. But in every one of those cases where you find those empty cathedrals, they drifted from one of these core simple things that anyone can know, that a child can know, that's summarized in the song, Jesus loves me, this I know. And, and here's my heart for us as a movement and for you as my brothers and sisters. I want you to know the essentials of Christianity so well that if someone stood on this stage who looked better than me, that's not that hard, okay? who told funnier stories and made you feel so good about yourself, but one day they said, you, you know what, we really don't have to believe Jesus is God. That a red flag would go off in your mind and you would know that's wrong. That leads to death. The way that leads to life is believing that Jesus is God, that he died on the cross for me, that he rose again, and knowing that I've received that by faith. Or if someone were to stand up here and say, you know what, this book, it's kind of old, there's a lot of myths in there. There's like a lot of weird stuff in there. Let's not take that book so seriously. You know, we could be followers of Jesus and not really care about that book, that a red flag would go off in your mind and that you as a church and as individuals would know, no, 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 that's not right. 
If we lose the word of God, we will lose our way. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. It matters for our kids and our grandkids. Next, it matters for you personally. It matters for you personally. I described earlier how I've seen the teachings of Jesus transform me from the inside out. And that's my desire for you, is that you increasingly and continually see that through all the seasons of your life, that Jesus makes you a better version of yourself. And it happens when you believe the truths about him. It happens when you obey him and you do what he says. And it does matter for you personally. It does make you a better version of yourself, a more honest version of yourself, a more productive version of yourself, an easier person to live with. It matters for you personally. You know, when you get on an airplane, a good pilot has a checklist. One of my best friends is a pilot, and it's a very long checklist that they go through before a plane takes off. They're checking the flaps, the wheel, all sorts of dozens of things. They're making sure that things are precisely where they need to be. Why? Because that plane taking off is a matter of life or death. And my heart for you in this series is that you would know the checklist, the, the simple things that you need to know for sure. You don't want to build your life on a belief system that hasn't been inspected. You know, Jesus taught, he said that he's the way, the truth, and the life. He also said this, that every one of us builds our life on something. And he made the analogy, it's like building your house and you wanna make sure you build your house on a solid foundation. And he said that he's a solid rock and there's all these other belief systems that are like shifting sand. And so this, this series is about you knowing what your foundation is as a follower of Jesus. Again, I've tasted, I've seen this power in my life. Now as a pastor, I've seen this power in hospital rooms. I've seen it at gravesides. I've seen it in triumph and in tragedy, in health and in sickness. The gospel of Jesus is the power of God unto salvation. Let me show you a living proof story of this. This is a friend of mine named Tim. Tim for a long time was not someone you would have wanted to cross paths with. Tim was an addict and a lot of things he did as an addict under the influence of those drugs hurt other people. Tim ended up in prison as a result of that. His life was a, a real mess and it really hurt the people around him. And then Tim had a moment where he believed in Jesus. And like all of us, that salvation moment, it starts with just the simplicity of acknowledging, I need help. I believe Jesus is God and wants to help me. It's as simple as that for the start. And that's where Tim started. And as he followed Jesus, he learned Jesus is the one true God. Jesus died on the cross for his sins. That's why he's got a cross tattoo on his arm now. That Jesus rose from the dead. Tim had a moment in his life where he said, this I know, where he believed it for himself. He said, God, I need your forgiveness for my sins. And then as he said, for the Bible tells me so, and he started to say, what does God's word say about every area of my life Tim transformed, he became a totally different person. Tim now lives a life that helps other people. He runs an addiction center called the Set Free Center where he helps other people get free from their addictions. And Tim goes every month to an orphanage in Haiti because he is following the Jesus who cares about the least of these. And so he goes to the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere and one of the poorest areas in that country to help boys and girls who don't have moms or dads. And Tim is part of my life story because I saw his transformation with my own eyes. 
But then when my wife and I started praying, we felt like God was calling us to adopt. And we had this sense that if we're gonna adopt, it's gonna be from one of the poorest countries in the world. And we had this moment of surrender where we said, okay, God, if you want us to adopt a child who needs a family from one of these really poor countries, we'll do it, we're surrendered, but you just gotta bring the opportunity along. And we were in that moment of surrender when Tim stopped by our house in Arizona and he had this photo album of this orphanage in Haiti that he goes to every month. And he started showing us these pictures of these little kids who didn't have a mom, who didn't have a dad. And ultimately, that's how we met our youngest daughter, Evie, was through Tim. So does it matter if we get Christianity right? Well, it mattered for my youngest daughter. It has mattered for me. It mattered for Tim. It matters for our families. It matters for our society, and finally, it matters when you face death. Every one of us, no matter how much money we make, no matter how much power we have, these bodies will wear out. The Rockefellers were richest, you know, John D. Rockefeller was one of the richest people in the world, but he's dead. Bill Gates will someday be dead. Vladimir Putin will someday be dead. It doesn't matter how much money you make, doesn't matter how many great doctors you can afford, your body will wear out and die. All of ours will. And I saw this as a reporter. I saw, I, I interviewed a group of people. They were multimillionaires and some of them were billionaires and they were in their 70s and 80s and they were starting to realize that they were gonna die. That they could afford the very best private doctors all over the world, but their bodies were still gonna die. They were gonna face death. And you know what they had devised because they were atheists? They refused to believe in God. They devised this, this group called Alcor that will have their bodies flash frozen like sushi. So the moment they die, they're gonna have their body flash frozen and they're leaving a trust with hundreds of millions of dollars to keep their body frozen in the faith and belief that someday science will figure out how to reanimate them back to life and then uh, heal whatever was broken in them. That is the only hope they have as they're facing death. And what I saw as a journalist as I interviewed those those people in that group Alcor is this, everyone's gonna face death and the smartest people acknowledge that it's coming for all of us and the smartest people are making some plans, but as I compared that plan to this plan, I felt a lot better about this one. I felt a lot better about this thing that we all kind of inherently know there is a God who made us and that there is this real documented person in history who claimed to be that God and that today all of our birthdays are based on his date. You know, it's the year 2019 because of the year he was born. And every time an atheist signs a check, they're writing Jesus' birth date on there. You know, this man has so impacted humanity that we can almost miss it. It's so big. It's like the ocean that we swim in. And as I investigated that first through the facts, but then with my heart to say, God, if you really are real, Jesus, if you really are God, I want to believe he has changed me from the inside out. And now I know that someday when I face death, it's not gonna be the end for me. It's just gonna be a transition into a much, much better eternity. I remember sitting at the bedside of a 92-year-old woman named Ruth. And I had walked with Ruth through the final months of her life. Her husband had been a follower of Jesus. He had gone to heaven 10 or 15 years before her. And Ruth was ready to meet Jesus. And none of us look forward to death. 
but she knew that for her, that moment that she breathed her last breath here would be her first breath in heaven. And Ruth had asked me, she said, John, when I start to pass, will you just sit next to me? And, and, and she couldn't breathe anymore. And so the, the people at the nursing home had given me these ice cubes to just set on her lips because she couldn't swallow a, a whole cup of water. She couldn't breathe. She couldn't talk, but she could still hear and she, she had told me weeks before, John, when that time comes, I just want you to keep reading the words of Jesus to me. And she had this verse in particular, Jeremiah 29, 11, where God says, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. That was Ruth's life verse. And I watched her. I watched her breathe her final breaths. I watched her pass from this life to the next. And while I already believed it at that time, I got to see with my eyes that when you follow Jesus, when you allow him to transform you, you can face death with a total peace, a total calm, a total fearlessness. So does it matter if we get Christianity right? Yes, I believe it does. And this series is all about you knowing for sure that you've got it right and that you have it in such a way that if your kid asks you, what does it really mean? that you can tell in this little song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, and you can know what each of those words mean. Let me pray that for you here. Father, you've gathered us here to plug into your power. You are the power source of the universe. You are the way, the truth, and the life. God, I just pray right now for anyone in here who has not yet believed. I remember that time in my life where I hadn't yet believed. And, and I would just call out and say, God, if you're there, I want to know you. Jesus, if you're God, I do want to believe in you, but show me. And Lord, if there's anyone here who hasn't yet believed, I just pray that, that they'd pray that prayer of faith today of just saying, God, if you're real, show me. I, I know you, you'll answer that prayer for them. Lord, many of us in here, we, we have believed and we've seen this power in our lives, but Lord, maybe the connection has gotten a little bit corroded and we've forgotten that this isn't just a belief system or a religion. This is about the power of God that leads to salvation. And this power is available for every area of our lives today. And so Lord, we just pray in this series, will you recharge our connection to your power? And Lord, will you use us to raise up a generation that our kids and our grandkids, they would know the power of God that leads to salvation. They don't need to go to seminary or memorize books to know your power so well that they can always recognize if a message is, is not quite right or if it's actually connected to your power. God, you've placed us in a world that's getting darker and darker. People are fighting about how to make the world a better place and they disagree so much and you've shown us the real answer that the power to change the world is found in Jesus and now you've entrusted this to us. So Lord, as we go from here, will you just send us out as lights in the darkness showing and telling this good news, this hope, this light, this warmth that our world needs so much. Lord, would you use this series to anchor us deep that we would be men and women who know the truths of Jesus and who experience the power of Jesus in our lives. We pray it all in Jesus' name, amen.